Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll examine the Environment Agency's new chairperson in waiting. We'll look at why England's biodiversity target could be unlawful. Then we'll look at the exciting octopus boom taking place in the Southwest. Then following that, Jamie is going to reveal this episode's fiendish quiz. And after that, we'll take a deep dive into the potential impacts of Boris Johnson's demise and those hopefuls wanting to step into his shoes. And then we have a wonderful new section for you in which Simon Pickstone and Eco Chamber newbie Alice Villan will bring you the latest in green policymaking from Brussels. And this is particularly important to keep an eye on as the UK diverges from the EU and because, as we all know, environmental issues don't respect political borders. So after much deliberation, I think it was about 15 minutes, we've decided to call the section Knowing Me, Knowing EU. And we really have, and that's not even a joke. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report. And as usual, I'm here with our editor, Jamie Carpenter. Hello. And Tess Colley. Hello. First up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Our first story is about the Environment Agency's new chair. It looks as though, barring a few dotting of I's and crossing of T's, that Alan Lovell will take up the post when Emma Howard Boyd leaves later this year. His background is very firmly business and not environment, and the fact he's known as a turnaround specialist, i.e. someone that tries to resurrect failing businesses, has raised a few eyebrows given the EA is one of DEFRA's arm's length bodies currently under review and potentially in line for a restructure. Uh, Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about his background? Yeah, so he's 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 got a, a sort of background of being chair and chief executive of some big firms. So so at the moment he's um chairman of, of the Interserve Group mm. construction firm. Um, he's also been chief executive of six companies, including Infinis, Jarvis, Costain and Dunlop Slazinger. Um, so he's got he's got a um, pedigree there of, of those those kind of um, organizations. But there was there was um, a bit of um, coverage towards the end of last week over um, refusing to divest his shareholding in a hydrogen and carbon capture firm that was chosen for a big government project. Was covered in the Guardian, so he he stood down as director of Progressive Energy last month, um, and that was that was only two days after being announced as the preferred candidate for the EA chair role. Um, mm. And and Progressive Energy they 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 uh, lead the Northwest Highnet project. Um, but d- despite standing down, um, he he was asked whether he would divest his his shareholding, and he he doesn't, he said he didn't feel a, a need to do that, which um, I think raised some some eyebrows. Mm. Yeah, and, and Tess, what are his views on regulation? Because he was grilled quite uh, hard by um, MPs on from a couple of uh, environmental committees on his suitability for his uh, for the for the role, um, and they asked him quite a lot, obviously, on, on his views on regulation. What was he saying there? Well, he, he kind of said that he thinks regulation is in need of modernisation, mm-hmm. um, which yes, when grilled seems to mean he thinks maybe there there should be a little less of it. Um, and that there should be less duplication between the agencies, which is, you know, something that we've heard a lot about from various voices um, over recent months. Um, that what was quite, um, well, it depends on your point of view, entertaining, uh, was that he, he seemed a bit surprised when told about the Environment Agency's dramatic drop in enforcement action over recent years. He didn't seem to seem to know much about it um and but he he said it, it sounds surprising and i would like to understand more um which i suppose is is quite yes it was surprising to hear him say it's surprising because uh it's it's one of the biggest issues facing the agency yeah i think that he was talking a lot about gaps and um duplication but when he was pressed on exactly which 
which gaps and what kind of duplication mm. he couldn't answer. Um, so I think he seemed really strong on the kind of regulation restructure element, but then not into the detail necessarily, and also on um, the wider um, nature. And Derek Hodge will come to that in a minute. So what does he think about um, the review? So DEFRA is reviewing its arm length bodies. Um, obviously, that includes the Environment Agency. And what has he said about that? Uh, well, he... He he said he was he was aware of the risks involved in a restructure, um, kind of echoing things that Emma Howard Boyd and James Bevan has said that you know you you you'd want to avoid too much disruption, um, but you know he he did say there's there's ideas about proposed better integration that have come forward from uh, Tony Juniper, the chair of Natural England, and he thought you know saying that that might that sound like a good idea. He said he's genuinely open minded mm. um, about about what should be the right way forward. Um, and he kind of talked about how he didn't, he really didn't want anxious EA staff to to be to be disrupted, and that it's a difficult time for them. Um, but it's it's hard to read exactly what what he might think. I'd it, say it is. It is. It's slightly contradictory because they at the beginning started saying that if he was going to set up bodies at the moment uh, to mm. look after these areas, he wouldn't set up the environment agency as it is now. Um, which I think is quite telling. But then he went on to say, you know, he went out on a, a day trip and met some met mm. some EA staff, and then you know was surprised to learn that there's more commonality between bits of the agency than he originally thought. Yes. So yeah, I, I'm not sure he knows uh, right now. Maybe <laughs> it's a little bit early. Um, so he, you know, he talked about that a lot. But when he was questioned about the environment agency's, I don't know, raise on detra, you know, like looking after the environment, he seemed sort of almost surprised at the questioning, didn't he, Jamie? He did. I mean, one one of the things that the the um, at the end of last week, the MPs on the on the joint committee that scrutinises did a scrutiny session with him. They they raised an issue over over gaps in his knowledge and and think things around things like nature recovery and. Air quality. He did. He didn't really have a lot to say, um, and I think he's obviously not started a job yet. So you maybe it's fair that he probably doesn't know some of these things that well. But but I think maybe reading between the lines that it's it's kind of interesting that he was prepared in some areas, and and hmm. maybe that suggests what he's been told his priorities are by by the Secretary of State. Hmm. Um, it's also kind of interesting. I thought he said that he was. He was headhunted for the for the role, yeah. Um, and, and again, does, what does that say about the government's priorities for the EA? Presumably, they were looking for someone with that sort of background to look after those those sorts of things within the EA, like the flood related stuff and and, mm. and not the nature stuff. And yeah. if you look at um, some of the other bodies, like Natural England with Tony Juniper and Office for Environmental Protection with Dame Glenys Stacey, you, you can see that having Having a particular sort of chair sets the right tone. Yeah, I think people will be looking at this and thinking that the, the, the jury's still out on whether Alan Lovell's going to be uh, the, the the person that's really going to turn around the 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 problems with the environmental side of things for the EA. Yeah, yeah, I think you know to be to sort of appear. I don't know, maybe he wasn't surprised, but he did appear surprised at being asked that, okay, you've got these views on, you know, regulation and restructure, but to what end, to what end for the environment? And he didn't have an answer to that and seemed surprised that he perhaps ought to have had a vision for nature recovery, given that it's dropping off a cliff. Or did I mention we're the most nature depleted country (laughs) in the world? How did you say that? Yeah, no, I have, I've forgotten. I'm glad to be able to get that in there. Okay. Um, Yeah, it was similar on air quality and waste. Um, He was kind of, he said that he stood behind a target to improve air quality and supported the circular economy. But beyond that, there wasn't much um, information coming. On water, there was a little bit more. Um, Obviously, that's quite high profile at the moment. He 
is an advocate of water metering. He said it was curious that nobody's looking after our water resources in 50 years' time, um, which I think is, you know, is fairly fundamental and it's nice that you picked that up. He's also saying, as Jamie mentioned, flood defense would be a big priority. And he thought that it would be good to modernize and digitize some of the work around sewage pollution because he thinks that could have been solved a lot sooner if um, the data had been better, which I don't think anybody would argue with. When he was asked about the polluter pays principle, he said obviously that it's something that he he backs and he thinks it's crucial that fines exceed any financial benefit that the polluter has accrued. Um, but he also said he did support the idea that the fines, that when they come back in, they shouldn't go to the Treasury, they should go to the Environment Agency, which I think a few people have said now. Um, I don't know whether that will have any bearing on what will happen in future, but it's interesting to know that, that that's the way he's thinking. And overall, the MPs, I think with the report that they that they came out, they seem they seem generally happy, but they noted the shortcomings too, didn't they, Tess? Yes, I mean it's, it's kind of the thing we've been talking about. They 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 said in their report they were surprised he had not come to more fully researched and formed views on some of the key environmental issues facing the agency, um, but and, yeah, highlighted significant gaps in his knowledge. Mm-hmm. But the, the his his background would. They were content he would be a good candidate. Yeah, he didn't seem to know much about the environment, but other than that, he's fine. He'll do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be really interesting to see how his approach differs from Emma Howard Boyd's, if, if indeed it does. Let's move on. Our next story is about DEFRA's proposed new green targets. It's one of a raft of uh, new green goals being considered by the government. If uh, the biodiversity target remains unchanged, the target would be to increase England's 2042 biodiversity levels by 10% from a 2030 baseline. But that is where the problem lies, isn't it, Tess? Yes, the the Office for Environmental Protection published their response to these targets. And uh, I was reading through it last week and I saw that there was this line that jumped out and they said that that target, that one you've mentioned, could be potentially unlawful and, and inappropriate. And it's because of the way the government's proposing to use the 2030 level of of species abundance mm. as a baseline. Yep. Yeah, it's something a lot of green groups have also said like well we don't you know we don't know what we could that could be worse than it is today. Yeah. Um and that's basically what the the OEP draws attention to a part of the Environment Act which says that long-term targets are required to be objectively measurable and achievable mm. uh, and therefore they say the proposed target does not appear to be lawful under that part of the act because how can you objectively say you can measure something that's yeah. unknown. Yeah. I'm sure that won't have been music to Defra's ears. Mm. Um, and that was one of a few points they made in this report. And so what have they said about the water targets that are in place? Well, that are being considered. Mm. Well, they, they said that they commend some of them uh, in, in some aspects, uh, but largely they're quite critical. They say that the the targets don't, ma- don't match the scale and urgency required uh, to meet existing targets in the water environment, such as the uh, water environment regulations. Um, and it and it criticizes them for not focusing on broader outcomes, and that's something that I, I've heard a lot about recently. Because a lot of the water targets are about you know uh, reducing nutrient pollution or mm-hmm. um, pollution from mines. Curiously, there's there's no overall outcome um, on, on water quality, uh, and because the current current targets we have, they're set to to end in twenty twenty seven. Mm-hmm. And there's a big question mark over what happens after that, and they're basically drawing attention to it. And you know, they say, whilst you know, of course, we should address mine pollution, it's it's not exactly the biggest issue of the day. Mm. Um, so saying it only affects around three percent of water bodies. Around three so percent. I think it is a terrible and acute problem where it where it yes. is. But um, to prioritize that, it seems a little odd. Yes. Um, but they they do commend the nutrient reduction target because that is that is a a, a major issue. Uh, I think they just say there needs to be 
this extra one yeah. um, for an overall outcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they will, they will address that. And um, what about the others, Jamie? What about air quality and and waste? Yeah, well, the 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 air quality target is one that's that's been had a lot of criticism. So um, when that was announced, Green Group said it was laughable. Um, so <laughs> OEP weren't no, not not great. But the OEP weren't quite that strong. But they they um, they said that 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 greater urgency is required to reduce um, high PM two point five concentration in urban areas um, and on residual waste there's a target to reduce residual waste um, in kilograms per capita by 50% by 2042 from 2019 levels um, the OEP is saying that that does not sufficiently implement the waste and resources strategy goal to move to a circular economy yeah. um, so so they're saying more work to be done on a lot of these yeah. these areas and, and, and how the government responds will be really interesting I don't suppose Oh, that was my next question. Do we know when they're due to respond to this? I think any all bets are off at the moment. Yeah, it's only um, recently closed, and yeah, yeah. yeah. now. But, um, but I think I think there's there's a it's an interesting thing though with the OEP because I think a lot of the um the, a lot of the attention has been around its enforcement role um, and people kind of right rightly waiting for it to show its teeth on on enforcement. But actually, this this advisory role is really interesting and it's it's showing its teeth here too. And uh, I think it's going into like a level of detail on. Sort of small print of policy that the the European Commission wouldn't have done before Brexit, mm. and um, and it, I imagine it's probably quite hard for the government to ignore what it's saying. It's not like NGOs or, or lobby groups where where you kind of know what they're going to say, even even if it's even what they're saying is right. But the OEP has been set up like this. It's a heavyweight body. It's got dozens of staff. It's got a really really good legal team. Exactly, a bunch of lawyers going at bunch it. Of lawyers, it's hard to ignore. And they're <laughs> yeah. saying it's unlawful. So mm, if the government mm. goes ahead with it, then they might be yeah. might find themselves in a bit of difficulty. Yeah. Well that's all really good, really good signs, really good early signs from the OEP. And we'll continue to watch this uh this targets issue really, really closely. And you can watch it at our webinar later yes, this month. Plug yes. Jamie, plug away. Yeah, plug so we've got a, on the twentieth of July in the morning, mm. eleven AM we've got um you can watch the watchdogs. We've got um, the chief executives of the OEP, so Natalie Prosser and Mark Roberts, who's the chief executive of Environmental Standards Scotland, um, and Ruth Chambers from the Green Alliance. So they, they're going to be talking about the the watch. The watchdogs going to be talking about their priorities, what they're doing. Um, so we're going to explore things like enforcement and the, this advisory role. Um, I think it should be really interesting and really timely. So do sign up on the website. It's free to free to register. Um, so be great to see you there. Yep, I think it sounds fascinating. Um, I'll definitely be watching that one. Yes. Uh, right now, let's talk cephalopods. So uh, conservationists in Cornwall are getting very excited about what's being described as an octopus boom down there. But how many octopuses constitute a boom test? What What are they finding? Um, 150 octopuses. That's a boom. Okay. <laughs> That's a boom. What's yeah. 149? That's not a boom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so Cornwall Wildlife Trust, they've said they've seen a dramatic increase in sightings, um, which is, is it, apparently these have, these events have happened before, but they're very uncommon. And normally you would only get about maybe two sightings per year. So okay. they, 150 is a massive increase. Yeah. Um, and you know the obviously the the, the wildlife trust that delighted about this mm. um 
fishermen maybe aren't quite so happy about the plague of octopus. Are they after the same catch? Yeah, I think they they are. They've got a new competitor in town. Oh, no. But yeah, it's it's, it's, it's brilliant brilliant news for octopus. Octopuses? Octopus eye. (laughs) The octopus community. The (laughs) The octopus community be thrilled. So what's causing the boom? Have you any idea? Uh, no, <laughs> there's, um, well, that they, the, the wildlife officials, they hope it's a sign of, you know, octopus, octopus populations are healthy. Mm. Uh, but you know, that's often, it's, it's probably not the case. I mean, a lot of, a lot of our, our coastal waters aren't, aren't particularly happy places for marine life. Um, but you know, so I guess they're going to see, see where it goes. It, 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 there's no, there's mm. no, there's no definite answers to why it's happening. Yeah. Um, but they'll be, they'll be keeping an eye on it. I'm mm. sure. I read somewhere that they only live, uh, because they only live one or two years, but they produce 500,000 eggs. Um, that means if there's a little bit of, you know, if it's just, if the conditions mm. are favorable for a short period, that can lead to massive fluctuations in populations. I wonder what the what the favorable condition was. That, um, mm. And it's happened before, apparently it happened in 1948 and, and before that in 1899. Yeah. It's some good octopus fact. Oh, and I thought it was quite interesting because the fishermen, as you're saying, were quite... Um, upset about them all uh, and, and they're, they're reminiscing about pre and i think it was in the guardian about previous times where they had them crawling all over their boat but they found a really nifty way of, of killing them uh, did you, did you no, know what's no? that one? apparently it's a knife between the eyes to the central brain otherwise it's really difficult <laughs> that's what they're saying wow yeah well it's i don't in a yeah. dark turn that's, that's, this is yeah. supposed to be our, our kind of like, this is a happy story sorry and now the octopus is being knived <laughs> If there's a balloon around, I'll pop it. Yeah. Um, uh, well, no. Well, have you seen the documentary, My Octopus Teacher? It's it's on that? the list. I know, and I it's, was thinking about it as that's well. That's lovely. That's really mm. good. Have you seen it, Jamie? I've not. No, oh, it's no, very, no. very good. It's about um, this man who makes friends with a female octopus. It's incredible. And you really mm. appreciate how intelligent and uh, what gorgeous creatures they are. So I hope they're still booming when I go to Cornwall later this summer. But <laughs> we'll see. Um, so, Jamie, do you have a quiz for us? I, I do have a Excellent. quiz. Excellent. <laughs> just say more. Um, so I thought we could we could try another octopus uh, quiz. Not octopus, no. no, not um so a few a few episodes ago we did we um plumbed the depths of Saturday night TV <laughs> for <laughs> National Lottery Who Dares Wins with Nick Knowles. Right. Um so this this is a thing where you you, you have to there's a, a topic with a list of things and you have to Say how many you'll name, and the other person challenges you to. They, they, right. uh, they could say, "I can name more," or they challenge you to name them. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah, yes, a painful. Memory. I think we did quite badly on that one. <laughs> yeah. that it was about arm things, bodies. Yeah, it, was, it yeah. went this quite badly. More, more, maybe slightly more topical. So I thought I thought we could start off with um, resignations. Oh, ah, okay. So of, of the of the cabinet secretaries, ministers, and parliamentary private secretaries that, that resigned last week, how many of them can you name? Okay. Oh, I think the number that actually resigned was forty-six in total. So, yeah. But, okay, who's going first? Tess, are you, you going to? I I've got four point five. I um, only have four pathetically, so you're going to have to name oh them. Gosh, um, I've got Joe Churchill, Rebecca Powell, Rishi Sunak, Savid Javid, and just the Justice Minister Victoria, Victoria somebody whose surname I've forgotten. Atkins. 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 Yes, Victoria Atkins. Well done. That's a very poor show. It was very embarrassing, actually, yes. This is... I did did have another one prepared, but I'm not not sure. 
I'm not, I was going to say... Is, um, if it's more detail, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. It was it's more detail. So um, Stuart Andrew, housing minister, resigns. Oh. No, housing ministers. So that means 20 housing ministers now since 1997. Wow. God. Which is 20, 20 housing ministers. Wow. Some of them are actually very, very big names. So mm. Dominic Raab. Oh, oh God. Alok Sharma. Oh, um, Grant Shapps, who could be the Prime Minister. Yvette Cooper as well, back in the day. So right. there's some, oh. so it's a, sort of a Petri dish for... For greatness. <laughs> greatness, exactly. Oh, the, so, the, describing it. Yes, exactly. And so the, the housing role often includes planning as well. So it, it's not, um, it is environment related. So people mm. having lots to do with the EIA and biodiversity net gain, that sort of thing. So... Mm. Yeah, I'm not quite sure that was a great set of questions there, but um, I'll try, try harder next, <laughs> to, next time. Mortifying. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thank you, I think, for that. Um, that brings us to the end of the Big Green News section. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Tess. We'll be back in a fortnight's time, but if you can't wait that long, you can go to engineport.com for lots more on all of these issues. Next up is our deep dive section. In this episode, Jamie and I are looking at what impacts the change in Tory leadership might have on environmental policy. Now, a lot of people in the green sector have already lamented that the Tories' deregulatory agenda under Boris Johnson is a disaster for the environment. But with a PM now on his way out, we need to look at the candidates and what their impacts might be. Um, there are lots of runners and riders, but I think it's fair to say that there are no environmental champions among them. Would you agree, Jamie? Yes, I think that's fair to say. In, in fact, you could probably say that some of them may be actively dangerous in terms of <laughs> environmental. dangerous, yeah. Dangerous, yeah, yeah. So we're recording this on Monday and the podcast is out on, on a Tuesday. And I think between recording and the podcast going live, we might know a bit more about how the election will play out. So I think at the moment there, I think there are 11 candidates and, and we'll find out later about how they're going to whittle those down. And it, it could well be that... Um, the field narrows quite quickly, depending on how many nominations they need to get. But, yeah. um, but, but some some of the discussions so far over the weekend has been quite interesting in terms of um, the net zero target being an area where some of the some of the candidates toward the right of the party are um, sort of saying some some fairly alarming things. Some seem actively anti net zero. I mean, is that overstating the case? There's, we've got Zoella Braverman and Kemi Badenoch both having made statements in the past to sort of signal that they they're not big fans. Yeah, exactly. So um so Swella Braverman in, in her over the weekend she said that she would suspend net zero targets. Um interestingly she's she's backed by um eco chamber favourite Steve Baker, who, who's not actually <laughs> standing himself but he's he's sort of putting putting his back in behind her. Um, he stood very briefly, didn't he? He did, and, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. Um so Kemi Badenoch who's um seen as a rising star in the Tory party, she she also um she hit out the target in 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 an interview over the weekend. I don't think she said specifically that she would scrap it, but she seemed to say that it was um, a target had been set without any any um, idea about how to how to get there. Which I think some some people who know about this stuff yeah. think is not really a very accurate statement mm. to make. Um, yeah. Interesting. She, she's backed by um, Michael Gove. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I think the other, the other thing that I saw over I think it was on Friday. Jacob B. Smog, another eco chamber favourite. He. Um, <laughs> He, he's not standing, but he gave an interview to Channel 4 News where he mentioned he's saying what he'd like from a candidate and he, he raised net zero and he said he doesn't want net zero targets to be abolished, but, he, we, but, but the interim targets should be revisited. 
So, um, so yeah, some some scary stuff potentially. Definitely, and there's there. It's very clear that there's a divide between the kind of the Boris Johnsons, obviously, obviously, and Rishi Sunak's. But then we've got Boris Johnson's allies like Zach Goldsmith going for Rishi by the throat. He's made a number of statements yeah. uh, over the weekend and, and last week, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. I mean, I think um, if anyone, Zach Goldsmith's Twitter account at the moment is um, it's on fire. It's on fire. It really is. Really, um, very, very. Very much on fire. So he's, as as you say, he's he's a Boris Johnson longtime ally and friend. So so it's um, possibly not surprising that he's he's uh, knives out for Rishi Sunak. Yeah. Um, but he has, and, and he's been making a broader point that um, he he gave a he wrote a piece with um, Chris Skidmore um, in the Telegraph, and Chris Skidmore's the chair of the All Party Parliamentary Group for Environment, and, and they're basically saying that that um, to move away from the net zero target would be electoral suicide for for the Tories. Um, but but yeah, he's that Goldsmith. He he he. Um, his comments about Rishi Sunak were were particularly entertaining. So so he he, he there's this extraordinary tweet where he he said that um, he claimed that Sunak had lined up Mark Spencer for for the the kind of DEFRA Secretary of State role and mm-hmm. said that this would be a, a disaster and and that Spencer would be a. Little Bolsonaro, which is uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is yeah, uh, exactly. extreme stuff. We don't have that much woodland that can be raised, but never mind. And of the other runners and riders, have they made any big environmental claims? It seems it's possibly missing. It does seem that it's not recently been has been talked about. The, yeah. the whole debate so far has been around mainly around around taxes. I think Jeremy Hunt sort of um, said that he he was sort of supportive of the net zero target, um, but but other than that, I think that's. Um, it's not really been something that's been at the forefront of the discussion so far. Mm. Yeah, and, and at DEFRA, that's still in a little bit of disarray, isn't it? Because we had Jo Churchill, who's an environment minister. She resigned last week and she was followed by Powell, although Rebecca Powell resigned almost the same time as uh, as uh, Boris Johnson. I'm not sure that was in her plans. Uh, <laughs> she might have just shot herself in the foot with that one. Um, but a new minister has been appointed today. Do you know much about him? Very little. This, this is um, Steve Double. Yeah. Um, so we we don't know a great deal about him, and we still have yet to confirm exactly what his brief will be. Yeah. Um, so so it'll be interesting to see whether he picks up um, Joe Churchill's remit, which I think includes waste and resources, and uh, or whether it's Rebecca Powell's brief. So so there's still some some questions around that. But but yeah, I mean, there's there's been some. That's one of the interesting things around what's happened now is that it does seem that it might be difficult for the the government to fill ministerial posts while Boris Johnson is still in position. I mean, yeah. if, you look, if you look at the levelling up department, it's been complete carnage there. So Michael Gove has gone. He's been yeah. replaced by Greg Clark, but the, the whole ministerial team effectively walked out. That actually had the effect last week that the, the government was unable to fulfil some of its business. So there's a committee that's scrutinising the levelling up bill, um, which is important for environment for many reasons. One one of them is that it's including the plans to reform the EIA Regime, but they, mm-hmm. they weren't actually able to put ministers to to sit on the, on on that committee, so it had to be suspended. So there's there's a there's a kind of um, zombie government scenario. Zombie government. Zombie government. Excellent. Um, they've also said as well that the, 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 there's also the line that there aren't going to be any new policies now until a new leader is imposed, which is, I guess you expect because a new leader might want to change things. So, mm-hmm. but but it mean, and, and I, I guess. Because summer recess is coming up anyway, there might not be a huge amount of stuff happening over the summer. But I think there's going to probably be a not not a lot to um, look out for policy wise beyond the leadership hustings for the next few months. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the reaction from the from green groups, I mean, they've they were already worried about the deregulatory agenda 
of the you know the previous I don't know what to call them previous government previous cabinet whatever it was whereas now they think they're worried that it might get worse um i know client earth was saying that the government's agenda for addressing the climate and ecological emergency had already seemed close to the bottom of the priority list but um and, but now they're you know a lot of green groups are, are considering that it, it might get worse richard benwell who's the chief executive of the ngo coalition wildlife and countryside link is, is a little bit concerned that there'll be um, sort of one-upmanship, but not in the right place. It mm. could be one-upmanship in looking at who could be the toughest on deregulation when what he really wants to see is people vying for, you know, a great transition to a nature-positive agriculture and all that kind of stuff and one-upmanship in, in favour of nature recovery. But uh, given what people have said in the past and, and what they're not saying at the moment or even what they are saying on net zero, it doesn't look like it's going to be uh, good news for the environment. no. No, and I think I think there's there's there seems to be a a rule in our politics at the moment that that things only ever seem to get worse rather than, than, than better. <laughs> yes. And I think I think that, I mean I think one of the questions that, or one of the things that that Goldsmith said in his his tweets was he was making a point that that, that Boris Johnson's departure would be bad news for nature and climate. And I mm. think I'm I'm not sure what I think about. That. I think I think he, his his record is is mixed really. So I think he, you could say that there are there are some successes like he. For as a right wing populist, if you want to call him that, that he he did actually prioritise some climate action, and there were some medium term climate targets that were were enshrined in law, and the environment bill became an act. So there were there was it's a lot of policy, a lot, there? yeah, a lot of stuff. And COP twenty six is is sort of seen to have been a success, although I think people think that number ten was actually kind of kept at arm's length during that because it wasn't really seen to be helpful to have them too closely involved. Um, right. But then, on the other hand, Boris Johnson didn't say anything at all about the environment or climate in his resignation speech. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying earlier, there's a whole load of deregulatory stuff that's been happening. And so, yeah, who knows where we're going to go next? Yeah, yeah. I might give the final word to uh, Nick Meesham, from, who's the chief executive of Wildfish. Um, he was saying that you know, Johnson's, this is, this is his quote, Johnson's desperate attempts to shore up his premiership resulted in, this, in support for farmers and the water industry. But maybe, just maybe, a new team will result in a positive reset. It couldn't be any worse, could it? <laughs> <laughs> right, moving on. Now, coming to our next section, which is brand new. Um, I'm very excited to bring it to you. It is Knowing Me, Knowing EU, the painfully crowbarred in pun. This is ex-chemical brother Simon Pixton and eco-chamber virgin Alice Fillon. They're both here to bring you the latest on the green policy from Brussels. In this inaugural section, they're going to unpick their Taxonomy Delegated Act. But don't switch off because it's a lot more interesting than it sounds. In essence, the European Parliament has voted to support labelling nuclear and gas power projects as green investments, following lots of lobbying by those sectors. And here's Simon and Alice to explain more. All right, thanks, Rachel. Today, we're bringing you tales of a greenwashing scandal direct from the EU. Simon, can you tell us a bit more about the Taxonomy Delegated Act? Uh, I can, with pleasure, with great pleasure, Alice. Um, It sounds boring, but it's actually very interesting. So bear with me. Um, Last week, we had a vote in the European Parliament about a technical piece of legislation, so a delegated act, on something called the green taxonomy and the green taxonomy is called the taxonomy deliberately to bore you because behind all of this technical language is actually a lot of very important political questions last week the european parliament held a vote on whether or not they were going to reject a piece of technical legislation 
regarding whether or not gas and nuclear power should be considered as green investments. Now, to you and me, gas power, at least, I think there's more of an argument around nuclear. Gas power, at least, sounds sounds kind of like it shouldn't be classed as green, kind of just Okay, but instinctively. Why, why do they need to be classed as green? What's the structure behind that? Yeah. I mean, I think basically to understand last week's vote, we have to take a step back and talk about the taxonomy generally. I'm sorry, I'm going to be using the word taxonomy a lot. Bear with me. In 2020, the EU passed a regulation called the EU Taxonomy Regulation. The regulation sets up a legislative framework that enables uh, the EU as a whole, the European Commission, to list economic activities that it thinks are environmentally friendly. Yeah, so that's EU Regulation 2020 slash... 852 for those of a legal mind. Oh, for the connoisseurs (laughs) among us. You know, for those of us who like a little bit of precision. (laughs) Um, I'll take your word for it, Alice. Um, Please do. The tax on the regulation itself simply set the framework up. And basically, the commission left a lot of the hard political decisions to delegated act. So these are pieces of secondary legislation that don't require the same degree of political scrutiny. So... What it meant is basically, if you if we all think European Commission, that's the EU civil service in effect. Yeah, so they propose the laws, they give a proposal, and then the uh, it gets debated in Parliament and in Council, and they usually pretty much they they meet to discuss an agreement, and then that's the law that gets passed. Correct. So that's a normal legislative process with delegated acts, these secondary pieces of legislation, member states which is to say that EU Council and MEPs, members of European Parliament, um, can debate a delegated act and they can veto it if they can get the required majorities. They can't, however, amend the pieces of legislation like you can with a normal um, proposal for a regulation or an EU directive. So that's the difference. Um, So just to be clear, delegated acts are usually pieces of legislation that are thought to be, in a sense, less controversial and more technical in nature. For sure. That's the whole whole purpose of a delegated act is it's to do things that are considered too technical to be um, viable to pass in the normal legislative process with full scrutiny from MEPs and from member states. Okay, but in this case, it is controversial. In this case, the commission basically... Um, postponed all of the difficult political decisions about the taxonomy to the delegated acts. And this was foreseen in the taxonomy regulation. Um, The first delegated act listing sustainable activities was relatively uncontroversial. And I say relatively because people still had criticisms of it, a lot of criticisms, but by and large, it was listing things that most people would consider to be environmentally friendly. So um, retrofitting houses or uh, solar panels or, or wind farms or what have you. Those kind of those kind of like relatively uncontroversial green investments. However, there was a huge amount of pressure on the European Commission to cover nuclear power and even more controversially, gas power. So that's fossil gas, uh, as climate activists have begun calling it. And where did that pressure come from? From the nuclear side, it came from France and Finland. From the gas side, it was generally a coalition of Central and Eastern European countries who see gas as a way of phasing out their coal plants. Um, Whether or not that makes sense, I think, depends a little on your perspective. I certainly have never quite understood why Central and Eastern European governments who are generally speaking quite 
dependent on Russian gas are so keen on fossil gas as the future of their power systems. But there we go. I mean, so that's there was how there are. was a rationale because it does seem a little bit wild to anybody outside of the negotiations. It sounds a bit wild that gas would be put on a list of for sure essentially and green for sure. And and where the pressure came from was basically um, Macron in France forming an alliance with Central Eastern European governments to pressure the commission into a separate delegated act covering um, the conditions under which gas and nuclear power would be considered green investments. So so this vote in the parliament, is that the MEPs saying that there's merit to the claim that natural gas yeah, should I be? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Delegated act was published uh, the December the 31st at about midnight. I mean, really, the commission postponed and postponed and postponed and did it when everyone, all the all the journalists were at their New Year's parties. The way it works is in the, um, the council, which is the member states, and the parliament, which is the MEPs, have then four months to consider this piece of legislation. That was an extended to six months. And during that period, um, they had the power to veto it. In the council, that was never going to happen. Under the voting rules in the council, you needed a two-thirds majority. Um, yeah. You need a, what's called a qualified, I don't want to get into it, but a qualified majority vote. It's effectively two-third majority. In parliament, you need an absolute majority. So that's more than half of all of the MEPs in the parliament, which is... 353 correct. MEPs. Good, hot with your numbers. Um, the people up, up until last week, people thought there was a reasonable chance of the veto happening. But the vote happened on Wednesday and they were really a long way off. They were something like 70 MEPs off um, getting, the, getting the majority they needed. Yeah, there were uh, so 278 MEPs voted in favour of opposing the motion and 328 voted against and 33 abstained. There we go. One thing I'd like to know, though, is it that usual for a delegated act to be this controversial? Generally speaking, not, although it's not unheard of for the commission to try and um, get controversial things through delegated acts. I mean, it all depends on the framework piece of legislation and how that, that, that in itself is a political decision, right? As in MEPs and in member states frame. decide what gets to be put in a delegated act. And so sometimes, I mean, for example, in the Renewable Energies Directive, which is another big piece of green legislation, there's um, provisions for a delegated act on green hydrogen and various other things like that, which are relatively controversial, actually. So yeah, it's not it's not unheard of, um, although it's perhaps unusual for a delegated act to get this much media attention. And I guess the jeopardy with that is that it's going to leave a lot of people unsatisfied. What what happens next? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting question. One of the things that it's important to remember is that you as a company are not required. You have no, if you're a big bank or you're an investor, you're not required to invest in green stuff at this point. You've got certain mandatory disclosure requirements. If you're a big investor, you can simply choose not to follow the taxonomy when it comes to gas and nuclear. And in fact, a fair number of institutional investors have said that they're not going to invest in gas, regardless of what the EU says. One of the things that it does complicate is around disclosure. And another, as in your obligation as a company to say whether your investments align with the EU's green taxonomy. Yeah, so in theory, you could absolutely invest in gas and choose not to disclose that and just you'd to disclose to, you'd to that. Disc- you'd have to disclose it, but you could say that X percent of our portfolio um, is in line with the green taxonomy. Yeah, that's, but that yeah. could potentially be including gas, yeah. Yeah. Another, th- another impact that it has is internationally, 
Lots of other countries are also thinking about setting up taxonomies. Some of them even have already. Yeah, the um, UK, the, for instance. If the EU has now decided that gas power is green, what kind of an impact is that going to have, for example, on the UK's taxonomy? And the UK is slowly in the process of, of doing its own. They've set up their own technical expert group, which is going to recommend you know, things that should and shouldn't be in the taxonomy. So it, it could potentially have a bigger impact than simply in the EU financial framework. So do you think that the UK is likely to follow suit? Oh, that I, I, I just don't know enough about the UK context. I mean, I would say that the, the, the taxonomy in the EU is the, is the baby of this strange political alliance between Macron and Central and Eastern European leaders who are, who are leaning on each other to get their own objectives, Macron, nuclear, Central Eastern European countries, gas. So in, in some ways, it really is a product of a very specific political context in the EU. But the UK's structure in terms of uh, its framework is also based on the UK, on the EU um, taxonomy regulation. So is there maybe a risk of that shading what the next criteria are going to be because it's just going to you know it, it would just be easier for the UK to follow suit yeah I think I'm sure there will be a quite a lot of pressure on the UK to align its taxonomy as closely as possible with the EU taxonomy I think that would probably really um, make the lives of investors much easier if they didn't have two completely different taxonomies whether or not the UK will go down the gap nuclear you could maybe see given that the UK government yeah. does want to build a bunch of new nuclear power plants gas I'm, I just don't know Okay, thanks, Simon. That concludes our first uh, Knowing Me, Knowing EU. Insert groans here. Uh, and now back to Rachel. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to Jamie Carpenter, Tess Collie, Simon Pixton and Alice Fillon. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com where there is an endless supply of articles, infographics, maps, interviews, past podcast episodes and a lot more. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.